my first year, what I did wrong. Oh, so many mistakes. The quality the customers were getting was horrible. The way it was being packaged and shipped was horrible. It was super late. I would say we definitely pissed off a lot of customers. So you were in a situation where you had too much inventory and then they don't pay you. <laughs> How did it feel? Terrible. It hurt. Hello, everybody. I'm Kelly Martin, and you're listening to Making It Work, brought to you by FedEx. If you've been listening for a while, you know that this is the podcast that passes on pleasantries and gets down and dirty with the realities of U.S. entrepreneurship. We've had a blast bringing this season to the airwaves, but we're not quite done yet. For the final episode of season three, we go right back to the very beginning and chat to the Making It Work entrepreneurs about their first year in business. And spoiler alert, it didn't always go well. So what are the most common catastrophes for a fledgling company? And is making mistakes a crucial component of success? Asking the questions is Tom Scallon. We all make mistakes and making mistakes can be frustrating. Even if we all know deep down, that's the best way to learn. But when you've raised the stakes and invested all of your time, energy and money into a brand new business, that frustration can turn into disaster and failure. Luckily, the four entrepreneurs we're speaking to in this installment overcame the things that went wrong in their first year. But our first founder is soon going to demonstrate that getting through the first 12 months doesn't mean there aren't more banana skins further down the road. Jacqueline Rogers is founder and CEO of Greentop Gifts, a business she began in Atlanta, Georgia, seven years ago. Unlike with our other three founders, her first year went swimmingly. But that didn't mean there weren't darker times to come. Our first year, I think, went pretty well. Year two is where we screwed up. Then screw the first year. Let's talk about year two. (laughs) Let's talk about year two. So year two, we expanded products. We were moving into apparel. We started working with a company that told us they could ship our orders and they could manufacture our apparel for us. They were on the other side of the country. I signed a contract without going to see their facilities. And we shipped all our product from the East Coast to the West Coast. And in that time that company was being acquired by another company and they didn't have the capacity to ship our orders. And we had a lot of orders shipped late. We off a lot of customers and it almost ruined our business. And I could do a whole podcast about fulfillment and the challenges of that. So I would say for sure, I learned so much and I know questions better now to ask. And when starting partnerships and working with other companies that have a really integral part in your business, but year two almost killed our business. We were trying to grow and scale. And in the attempt to do that, it almost ruined our business. Was it as simple as you just tried to scale too fast too soon? We gave them too much responsibility without understanding how they were going to do it. And the quality wasn't there and the capacity to ship the orders was not there. And so the quality the customers were getting was horrible. The way it was being packaged and shipped was horrible. It was super late and it was not... It wasn't on brand for us. It didn't bring a joyful experience and it didn't provide any love to the product. <laughs> and our customers could see the difference in the quality from year one to year two. And they were not happy and they told us about it. Um, so we learned really quickly and we got out of it as fast as we could. It didn't seem to create a joyful experience for you, definitely. No, it did not. When you say you were close to going out of business, how close? I would say we definitely pissed off a lot of customers. And so we was concerned, will they reorder from us in year three? Um, because at that point, we were only seasonal. We were only shipping orders around Christmas. And so it was like, 
if you order a product for Christmas, you need it before Christmas. And a lot of times people order our products to wear to Christmas parties and the holiday giving before the actual 25th, right? So having customers not get that product until after Christmas and then wanting their money back and having to refund a lot of orders was, it presented a lot of challenges. So we didn't go out of business, but it definitely hurt how our customers felt and our representation of the business. Before Tom's next question, here's an offer exclusive to Making It Work listeners. Open a free FedEx business account today and you can get up to 40% off shipping services, including residential and delivery surcharges. Just visit fedex.com slash making it work offer or click the link in the episode description and start saving on shipping with FedEx. Now back to the show. We hear a lot that it's important as an entrepreneur to make mistakes because if you don't make mistakes, you can't learn, of course, and then you can't improve. But it seems like we only hear that from entrepreneurs who made it in the end. We never hear from the ones who worked really hard to start a business and are now stacking shelves at Walmart. Yeah, that's true. You don't hear about this business failed. I think there probably are businesses or they're, they've moved to a different job. Like they moved to not a different job. They've moved on. They're kind of serial entrepreneurs. Like, okay, my first business was a flop. I took those challenges and then I had a successful second business. Yeah, but you don't, you don't really hear those stories. I think a lot of times people don't want to talk about it, but I'm willing to talk about our failures in year two because they sucked. <laughs> so you're not particularly glad you made mistakes in year two and you overcame them. It just kind of sounds traumatic. I definitely think those mistakes, I learn from them and I know what to look for in partners and companies we work with. I ask a lot more questions. I ask different questions and I like to touch it, see it and have my hands on it. I want to be within a 30 minute drive of the partners we work with and the warehouses that we use. Um, And I will scream it from the top of the mountains to anybody else who's looking for those type of services and share with them the hiccups and the headaches that we have so that it doesn't happen to other people. So what would be your big piece of advice so that it doesn't happen to other people? I would say you want to go see the facilities. You want to ask about their ability to ramp up into scale during like holidays and seasonal moments. And if you get like a spot on a, you know, a morning show, can they handle that fulfillment? Asking what their capabilities are, their ability to hire additional staff and you kind of want to ask, like, are you planning on moving anytime soon? Or is there anybody looking to acquire you right now? Like some of those questions they can't answer, but I always ask them, you know, I'm very direct. I know sometimes I ask questions and people are like, why is she asking me that? Because it happened to me before and it was horrible. That's why I'm asking you. As first, I mean, second year mishaps go, Jacqueline's was a pretty big one. Not only did she lose out on holiday sales, but also came close to alienating her small but loyal customer base. But just because your inventory arrives on time doesn't mean you're sitting pretty. And no one knows that better than Anna Van Pelt and Kirsten Coulter, co-founders of sustainable snowboard brand, Niche Snowboards. In their first year, this Salt Lake City-based duo were so petrified about not having enough stock to fill the shelves, they overordered. Stuck with boards they couldn't sell, a discount retailer came to the rescue. Well, that's what they thought, anyway. One mistake we made early is we had a season where I think we got very excited about some growth. And then we didn't have a lot of historical data to work from. And we over-ordered way too many snowboards. And then at the end of the year, we were stuck with like a thousand extra snowboards to sell 
And it's the end of the year when everything's on clearance and we had to find ways. It took us, I feel like two seasons to recover from that. That was one of our biggest early mistakes was ordering way too much product, but it was such a valuable lesson because now we've learned how to order conservatively and knowing that it is far better to sell out and create demand leading into the next season than it is to be sitting on a ton of extra product that you're stuck with and you're going to have to clearance out and it's a total nightmare and takes up so much of your time and energy and emotional bandwidth and it sucks. I believe at that point we started to panic just knowing, you know, we're somewhat seasonal. So knowing that we only had a few months and we had so much stock left. So that was probably when it hit us. And it was stressful. I mean, that's just a, such a stressful situation, knowing that it's a large cost up front and um, you need to sell your snowboards to cash flow. I'm sure every small business has a situation like this, but there was a retailer at the time that specifically purchased sporting goods products postseason at a discount. And so we moved a large portion of those snowboards through that channel and then they, they disappeared on us. So they left our invoice unpaid and closed down the business. So that was another lesson learned. So you were in a situation where you had too much inventory. And my guess is there's a bit of nervousness about wanting to associate your brand with a discounter, but you feel the relief of getting rid of the stock and then they don't pay you. <laughs> How did it feel? Terrible. It hurt. Yeah, terrible. But that's the thing. You know, like it was, it was the stress of the situation. You said it perfectly, Tom. It was the stress of the situation, not wanting to discount your product because we are not a discount brand and we make high quality snowboards. And then yes, of course, finding a home for these snowboards and then not getting paid. That was very personal. We are very trusting people and we had, you know, you create these relationships with buyers. And so hard not to take that so personal when... They didn't pay us for their invoice and just like we could not like everyone's phones got turned off and we couldn't contact anyone. I just remember feeling like so personally hurt. Totally. And I think like through a lot of these experiences, we've just learned to not panic there. I feel like there's very few things now that will make us truly panic because we've been through so much of them. But oh my gosh, we've had many a situation in which we call someone freaking out. And we're like, oh my God, this thing is happening. And then they're like, it's okay. I went through this several years ago. It'll be fine. Here's what you got to do. Or you just got to suck it up and know that this sucks and move on or whatever it is. There's always a solution and making sure that we remain in a solution-oriented mindset at all times. So looking back to that period, what's your biggest takeout? I think I can probably guess, but tell me, please. Be humble, have a plan, don't overorder. <laughs> be conservative with your goals and your ideas of who you are and how successful you can be. You're listening to Making It Work, coming up. I wish that... I had been more confident and had spent money faster in areas where it mattered. I could have been where I am today, probably two years to 18 months faster. If you give away your product, 
oftentimes they're gonna be giving you distorted feedback because they wanna reciprocate the kindness that you gave them. If they paid money and they don't like it, they're gonna let you know. Do you think this lack of confidence is something we see in women entrepreneurs more than men? I definitely do. I was going through some stuff in my in my personal life and it honestly made me think twice about whether or not I even wanted to do this. I'll be honest with you, when we came up with this idea for a topic, I thought we'd be talking a lot more about money. To be specific, quickly running out of it. After all, poor cash flow management is the reason 82% of small businesses fail. But as explained by our next entrepreneur, you can have the opposite problem. Let's bring in Krista Cotton, CEO of bitters manufacturer El Guapo Bitters. This New Orleans-based entrepreneur has discussed her aversion to spending money on this show before. What we didn't know is the extent to which she feels her penny-pinching held El Guapo back at the outset. Let's hear what Krista has to say. Oh, so many mistakes, but you learn by going through it. I will say I try to not repeat mistakes. I think that's uh, really critical. I noticed you're saying try there. Try, yes. There, I mean, of course, there are things that go wrong and you, and you remind yourself, I already learned that lesson, I thought, but you don't learn it until you're not repeating it. So when you're small, you can sort of get away with a lot, but I think it's easy to not spend money where you need to because it's really scary. So when your revenue is tighter and you're not necessarily profitable yet, it can be very scary and very hard to go out and spend money where you should. And I wish that I had been more confident and had spent money faster in areas where it mattered. We're only four and a half years in. We are profitable. We've already gotten our first raise under our belt. We just closed almost $1.2 million seed series, which is how we were able to move into this building. But I could have been where I am today, probably two years to 18 months faster had I been more confident in spending money. Four and a half years ago in your heart of hearts, did you know where the money needed to go? I think 50-50. I think there were things I definitely knew I needed to spend the money on, but I just couldn't bring myself to spend it. Or in some situations, I just frankly didn't have the money, even though I knew if I spent it on this new website, I would make it back fourfold within a year. I just didn't necessarily have the budget to be able to do exactly what I wanted to do. So I said, if I can't do it the correct way or the way I think it should be done, I'm not going to do the mediocre part. I'll just keep what I have until I can afford what I want to do in the future. And then in other ways. I think I, I, I spent the money and I knew exactly where I needed it to go. But then there's other things that were very wasteful um, that I thought would make us a bunch of money. Some examples of that are trade shows that were the wrong fit. And I've just thought, I need to test this out. I need to try it. If I go to this thing, you know, eventually it will pay off. And sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't. But those are the hard lessons, especially when you don't necessarily have the budget to be able to afford them. It teaches you the lessons and it makes your company better for the long run, but it, it's hard in the moment. You were telling me when we were chatting before that from the outset, you purchased the trademark for Guapo Bitters. That sounds to me like commitment and diving in and spending money pretty fast. Correct. So I, but I paid very little for this. This was not something that was very successful before. There was a bartender in the French Quarter that had this idea and didn't have the business background or the scientific background to make it work. So there were bottles exploding on store shelves. There were a lot of reasons why this was not working out. And frankly, someone was going to have to take it over or it was just going to be completely done. So 
yes, I did spend money from the very beginning. And when I went to the bank and got my first loan, I probably should have had more working capital in the very beginning to make some of the bigger infrastructure uh, changes that needed to happen in order for us to be um, stronger out the gate than we were. But I really thought I could just make it work on less money because it is really scary when you don't really know yet. And that was definitely a mistake on my part. You know, most businesses fail because they have a lack of operating capital to keep going. And we're almost at the five-year mark. And I am really proud of that. We very often hear from entrepreneurs, I believed in my idea, so I went full throttle. Mm-hmm. But it, it kind of sounds like when you were starting out at the back of your mind, you were thinking, I could borrow more, I could spend more, but it, it might not work out. And I might have to start another company. I might have to come up with a new plan in the future. I knew that this idea was strong and I, and in my head, I knew no matter what, I'm going to figure this out. But product market fit was so important to me. So until I had the right recipes, the right clients, the right social proof, the right everything, I wasn't going to go out there and, and spend all of my political capital, if you will, plus all my money if I didn't have exactly the right branding, product, client, home run type of fit. So I really spent two years formulating the recipes, getting the science right and talking to clients. And honestly, a lot of my top chef clients are the people that gave us a lot of credibility and social proof before we honestly deserved it. So people like Nina Compton that put us behind the bar at Compare Le Pen, she got second place on my season. David Chang made a chocolate chip cookie recipe with our chicory pecan bitters in place of vanilla. That was huge for us. And all of that happened within the first two years. And then about 18 months in, I got a spot in the Neiman Marcus Christmas catalog from one of these expensive trade shows that I went to. And that was my largest purchase order to date. It was like $23,000, I think, maybe twenty five. But that was really the moment where I thought, you know, I really can do this. But it took me two years to get to that point. And once Neiman Marcus happened, I really did start investing more money in figuring all of this out. And from there is when a lot of the distributors started reaching out to us. A lot of additional chefs that have big followings started using our products, but we started spending more money on things like PR, marketing and advertising efforts and putting ourselves out there in ways that we hadn't really before because I didn't really feel like we had the product figured out. But once we had chefs raving about our products and using it behind all of these James Beard and Michelin starred restaurants, I knew we were onto something and that we could put it out there in more public ways and there would be a market for it. So you gained a little bit of traction and then you started plowing more money into PR. Yes. That sounds kind of like the logical thing to do. Are you not being a little bit tough on yourself when you say you didn't spend enough money in your first year? Well, the first two years, I really think that I didn't. I mean, I bootstrapped the entire thing. Like any job that was here, one either myself or my partner did it. Like we started with two people. Even when we were over 500K, it was two people with one part-time assistant. And it took us longer to do very basic things like hiring because we just wanted to make sure... It felt like a lot of responsibility to have other people on our payroll. Like we really needed to make sure that we were going to be able to support these people and provide quality jobs and do all the things that in our, in our hearts we wanted to do. But there's a confidence issue of just wanting to feel like you were there. I didn't want to put the cart before the horse. So I wanted to just make sure that I had it all figured out and that these were going to be steady long-term positions and that we were going to be able to continue growing it. So I, I would say in the beginning, the confidence factor was probably missing. I knew it would be successful, but I just didn't have the gumption to go out there and and get after it for the first two years. And that's something that's really changed. 
Do you think this lack of confidence is something we see in uh, women entrepreneurs more than men? I definitely do. I alluded to earlier, I was going through some stuff in my in my personal life and it it honestly made me think twice about whether or not I even wanted to do this. I left a relationship that I had been in for 13 years with someone that has um, some substance abuse issues. And that was a really pivotal turning point in my life. And when I moved to New Orleans and I made this decision to start this company, I knew that no matter what, I wanted this to work and I wanted to stand on my own two feet and I wanted to be able to support myself and not have to rely on another person. But I think building confidence, especially as a woman and especially as a woman in the South and as a business owner is is really difficult. And it took me a while to sort of get my sea legs underneath me. But once I started figuring it out and once I started building a community and a network around me of other women, not even that have been in that same situation, but just women that are supportive and are also business owners and trying to be successful in their own right in various different industries and disciplines. It really sort of made me more motivated and inspired to keep going and sort of build to where I am today. But it just, it changed my outlook on things. I think when I started this, Definitely when I started this, my only goal was to be successful. No matter what, I want to be successful. Now, my greatest joy is giving back. So mentoring younger entrepreneurs and women specifically and helping them sort of wade these waters at the very early days is what I get the most joy out of. And I'm very grateful to be in the position that I'm in today. And a lot of it has come from these personal struggles that have sort of manifested themselves into business success. Every entrepreneur is different. Some splash the cash, some are more cautious. But what Krista recognises is that there's an underlying reason for these various approaches to doing business. In El Guapo's first year, hers was a lack of confidence. Of course, a way of building your confidence is early successes. And acing a college project and turning it into a business isn't a bad start. Let's wrap up this episode and season with Logan Lamance, co-founder and CEO of Kanga Coolers. This South Carolina-based business was the brainchild of Logan and some of his classmates from Clemson University. But it didn't take him long to realise that the people at the beginning of your journey are not always the ones you want to be your business partners. So when I look back at, at our first year, I can't believe that I actually formed the business in the class with an LLC, provisional patent, everything kind of lined up actually physically in the class with partners and people that I didn't actually choose. They were chosen as a part of the project for me. And so that was kind of a, a, a massive blunder. I mean, I think obviously looking back, you know, your class project partners that you don't choose like are not necessarily going to be your best formal business partners. But, you know, some things work out, some things don't, but it definitely gave a bit of a early challenge on getting the company set correctly when you didn't even pick the people you're working with. So were you able to maintain control and ownership over the business? We've got a couple of people that are owners. You wouldn't recommend sticking with the people that were kind of thrust upon you in a class project for too long? Here's a logic. At the time, we were thinking, okay, well, I've got to, we're going to do a provisional patent because we want to hold our place in line to make sure that nobody else is going to see this idea. I mean, even at our university, any other university, they're going to see this idea and then anybody's going to take it and run with it while we're still at the ground level. So you obviously have that concern. So we were thinking, okay, let's go ahead and get the provisional patent filed. But we also have a bunch of people in this project that could potentially have a claim to this patent. We need to assign it from us to an entity. 
so that we make sure that there's no issue from that standpoint on who's the inventor and who did this or who did that. Because I had the idea, but, you know, for example, what if someone went and, you know, sourced the materials? Like what claim for the prototype? What claim do they have on the evolution of that for as it is in the patent? So there's a lot of legal questions from that standpoint. So we thought, okay, let's assign it to a business. Um, okay, now we have to create a business. Who, who's in the business? Well, it's clearly all of us. And there you go. From step A to step D or so, you have a intellectual property and a formal legal entity with people in a class project. Another thing we did wrong in our first year, we proceeded to market a little bit too quickly with a very minimum viable product. We did our test market with a very minimum viable product, which was great. We got actual customers to pay us for the products. They gave us a real feedback. On a side note, if you give away your product, oftentimes they're going to be giving you distorted feedback because they feel reciprocation. They want to reciprocate the kindness that you gave them your prototype. If they paid money for a minimum viable product, which is a pretty bare bones version of it, and they don't like it, they're going to let you know because they paid money for it. So that's an important thing we found for getting true raw feedback about the product was if they paid money for it, they're going to let us know how they feel. But we took that product. I don't think we improved it to the point that we needed to for mass production. So we hit the market with a very, very bare bones version of our product, which has now evolved to a much higher quality, a, a very a product that we're very proud of. But I think we moved a little quick on, on bringing that specific version to market. And you only get so many opportunities to leave an impression with people. Now, again, you're early stage startup. It makes sense to get something out there that may not be perfect because sometimes you need to be told just to go and get out there. But there are definitely things that I would do over again. And we would save a lot of money, especially on particularly on our first manufacturing run where we did our first inspection with that model and over half of them failed. We had to remake almost all of them. So that was fun. I guess if you don't make mistakes, you can't learn, right? Right, right. Got to make the mistakes early and when not as much as on the line. If we made the same mistakes now, a lot more would be on the line. There'd be a lot more fallout. Awesome. Logan Lamance, co-founder and CEO of Kanga Coolers. Thanks a lot for the chat. Thanks for having me. It was a great time. Krista Cotton, CEO of El Guapo Bitters. Thanks a lot for appearing on the show. Thank you for having me. It's been a blast. Jacqueline Rogers, founder and CEO of Greentop Gifts. Thanks a lot for joining us. Thank you. This was so much fun. Enjoy chatting with you. Dana Donafrey, founder and CEO of Anna Ono. It's a pleasure as always. Thank you so much. Jack Razdan, founder and CEO of Care and Wear. Thanks a lot for answering our questions today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Anna Van Peltz and Kirsten Coulter, co-founders of Niche Snowboards. Thanks a lot for appearing on the show. Thanks for having us. Graham Vizi and Fisk Bigger from Graham and Fisk's Wine in a Can. Thanks a lot for chatting to us. Thanks, Tom. Really appreciate you having us on. Thanks, Tom. Stephanie Duncan, co-owner of Floral Genius and Harmony Harvest Farm. Thanks a lot for talking to us. Thank you for having me. This has been so much fun. That's it for this episode and this season of Making It Work. Please let us know what you think about our podcast by giving it a rating and leaving a review. It really helps others find out about us too. Don't forget to subscribe and feel free to get in touch with me, Tom, and the team at makingitwork at fedex.com. Thanks to the entrepreneurs in this episode, Krista Cotton, Jacqueline Rogers, Anna Van Pelt and Kirsten Coulter, and Logan Lamance. And the other entrepreneurs featured in this season, Dana Donafrey, Graham Vizi and Fisk Bigger, Chat Razdan, and Stephanie Duncan. 
Making It Work is produced by Yolene Marguerite, written by Tom Scallon, and edited by Lars Blockenberg, with creative direction from Jeroen von Koningshoven. Music by Fresh Big Mouth, who created the song with actual sounds from the FedEx Superhub. This show is delivered to you by FedEx and presented by Tom Scallon and me, Kelly Martin.